So, good evening, Sangha. First, I want to say that this teaching team is so sweet. <laughs> They're very kind. It's really nice being around Sangha. I don't know if you've noticed that yet. <laughs> it really is. So, tonight I'm going to talk about one other part of the fourth foundation of mindfulness. You can't hear? I'll try to move it up. Is that better? Is that better? Okay. Let me know if you can't hear me for sure. Yeah. It's okay. So tonight I'm going to talk about um, one other of the Dharma factors or the uh, Dharma mental patterns that is in the, in the fourth foundation of mindfulness and that is the seven factors of enlightenment and I love that I love the seven factors it's one of my favorite things <laughs> and um, and you know the people that I have seen both in the groups and on individual interviews you come in and you are pervading one of the seven factors <laughs> And I think that many of you don't realize that you're doing that. And it's really important and wonderful to really see that, to put your mindfulness frame around it so you can um, really experience it, you know, spread it around the body, you know, see what impact it has on your thoughts, on your emotions, on wanting to do anything, because that's the way that you strengthen it. You strengthen them. And uh, they are really great. And many of you are having them. I'm sure they come and go like they do with all of us. But it's important to know them. So what are the seven factors of enlightenment? Um, the first one is mindfulness. And we all know that one, right? Mindfulness. And uh, mindfulness is the balancing factor. Because the uh, seven factors... Uh, there are uh, three, um, three enlivening factors or uh, factors that are a bit energetic, and there are three calming factors. There are enlivening factors and calming factors. And I'm sure that, and they say that um, we, you develop them one by one. Each one of them leads to the, to the next one, but... I've also think that sometimes when uh, we have two of them on either side, we actually have all seven of them. And what we need to do is just look for the other ones or maybe make an aditana, an intention to see it or for it to arise a little bit stronger. So what are they? And so this, uh, these seven factors of awakening are definitely part of our uh, citta, part of our intuitive awareness, part of the wisdom knowledge system in us. Uh, you know, we can definitely look for them and describe them conceptually, but they're really not, um, you know, they're really part of, uh, part of our wisdom element. So we don't want to engage them too much with a lot of concepts, but, you know, a few concepts here and there, as an aditana or an intention for it to arise or to be stronger can be very, um, very useful and wise way to deal with it. So what are they? 
So mindfulness is the um, balancer. You know, it can see what factors are in the heart-mind and the mind at any time, and then balance them. There's three enlivening factors, which are um, investigation, dhamma, richaya, effort, um, effort, energy, virya, and joy, rapture, piti. I personally think it's piti and sukha. I mean, they're both kind of there, but <laughs> that's my take on it. So I'm going to talk about each of those, and, uh, you know, these. this is kind of a, you know, there's a lot of concepts, and, you know, it's a system. I put the list on the board, and I'm going to put a little table on the board that has them all. And, you know, as um, Tara said so beautifully last night, and um, Temple and Christina have said it too, don't worry about, you know, taking in all of the names and stuff, because... I personally did a little Google search for seven factors, and oh my gosh, there is so much free seven back factors. You could get a 500-page book on it, or a three-page, you know, these are what they are, and this is how you know that they're there, and this is how you strengthen them. So you don't need to really, um, you know, take it all in here right now. But you do want to definitely add this to what you're looking at in your mindfulness for sure. Because we tend to see all the unwholesome, hard stuff, and we don't see the good stuff. But so many of you came in giggling today, and yesterday it was so wonderful to see. Because that is, you know, happiness. It's a little PT going on there. Okay, so mindfulness. Fi mindfulness is at the forefront. It must be developed at all times. And, you know, that's pretty much in every part of life. You know, we want to be aware of you know, what, um, what intention we have for any workings in the world. So mindfulness is really um, the balancer of those two. And then the first um, enlivening factor is investigation, dhamma uh, vichaya. And uh, some definitions of that are analysis of qualities to... You know, and what it feels like is just, you know, when you're meditating, you just have an interest in something, right? It's like, oh, wow, what's that arising? Or what is that thing? And you're just wanting to look closer at it. It's uh, an investigation or interest in something that you don't have to try to have. It just arises. And I've seen that in many of you, the people that I have had group and individual interviews, I've seen it in all of you. And it's important for you to see it because it is one of the seven factors of awakening. It's an incredibly wholesome mental factor and you want to see it and be aware of it. So if you know what it feels like, you can actually call it up. So do you think many of you have had this, like, just interest in what's happening without having to effort for it? Has that been? Yeah, right? Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Investigation. Uh, you an you're analyzing the qualities of what's in your mind. Um, it's also called discrimination of dhammas, which means you're just inv you know, investigating and interested in what is happening. And um, your investigation of doctrine, which means if you know, you know what the 52 mental factors are. I also have a better list of those that I'm going to put on the board. <laughs> 
you know, you can look, look for them, you know, just look for them, look for the doctrine of what the Buddha taught about what is in this heart, mind, body, and be able to, um, you know, to discern what they are. Uh, discernment uh, to things in order to deliver one from ignorance and craving. And that's what it's for. It's really to know when there's ignorance and craving in the mind and to say, I see you ignorance, I see you craving, with, you know, a lightheartedness and, you know, loving awareness. So you can say, bye-bye. <laughs> Dhammavichaya investigates and identifies experience. It, investi it investigates the doctrine, what the Buddhist thought, and um, it's also known as Yonaso Manasikara, right? Yonaso Manasikara, which is uh, wise reflection and the proper approach or systematic attention. And which questions does uh, Yonaso Manasikara entertain? One ignores questions that lead to the proliferation of men uh, mental thoughts. So you don't want to investigate things that aren't central to the practice. You know, you want to investigate if you think there are unwholesome mental qualities, but you also absolutely want to investigate what wholesome mental qualities are. Yes. So be careful about what you're investigating. Some things, you know, you might want to investigate something that happened between you and a friend before the retreat or something that you're going to have to do after the retreat, but that would not be a good uh, target of... Um, of investigation in the seven factors. You really want to keep it to what's happening right here and right now. And, uh, you know, what is arising in your heart, mind, body. So I've got like two different, <laughs> two different um, notes on this. I want to read you this one. Um, actually, I should have read this before I started talking. So this is about uh, the Seven Factors of Awakening in general. And it's a quote by Gil Franz Dahl. It's uh, expectation versus aspiration. If we want to base our lives on aspiration rather than craving, we have to give ourselves time to discover our deepest wishes. Aspiration often arises from a non-discursive part of the heart and mind, from chitta. Aspiration arises from chitta. Craving and clinging are often tied to the discursive world of planning, thinking, and fantasy, while aspiration is associated with inner stillness and relaxation. Sometimes it is only during long contemplative periods that people discover what they most want to base their life on. It is also important to respect both ourselves and our aspirations. It is easy to dismiss both our aspirations and the search for them. Believing that we are not good enough, capable, or deserving can leave us feeling unfulfilled and regretful. In the world of aspirations, it is far better to try and fail than to never try. So having an aspiration for, you know, profound inner inner well-being that you can pervade to the world is a very, very wholesome aspiration. And it, you know, I mean, all of us, including me, will have the thought, yes, I would like to be more enlightened. 
And sometimes it is a selfish, uh, you know, actually, you know, Bonnie. Yeah, sometimes Bonnie wants that. <laughs> and, you know, one excellent, um, one excellent little reflection to do, and I've told a few people this today, and I love it, I do it all the time. Not I, not mine, not self. Just that little, just to bring that in, that little reflection, not I, not mine, not self. Particularly when you can see that you're, you know, you're having egoic clinging to the outcomes of this practice. You know, the outcomes of this practice are really aspirational from chitta, from a much deeper sense of wanting well-being for ourselves and for everyone. So you can use that reflection, not I, not mine, not self. And when you feel that aspiration, you know, that's really the Dhamma working in us. You know, the Dhamma takes over at certain times during our practice, particularly on retreat. And it's good to see that, you know, to see that that is a wholesome um, element arising and getting stronger and to know that that's not an egoic clinging at all. That's not craving. It's something much deeper than that. And, you know, all of those things are what investigation is really good at investigation to see, you know, our deeper aspirations. And you can ask chitta, you can ask your intuitive awareness, you know, what do I need right now? What am I wanting right now? Why am I doing this practice? And see if you can get a wisdom answer to that. Or just say, you know, my aspiration is to have my, have this well-being and to be a source of well-being for conditioned existence. Yes. So, so we are balancing the factors. So mindfulness, and we know, you know, the way for mindfulness to come up is not forgetting, just have a presence of mind, remembering what is um, skillful and what isn't skillful, and trying to determine, you know, when you see really wholesome things and unwholesome things to say, oh, that's not very wholesome, but that is wholesome. You know, we do see greed and aversion and delusion and the hundred ways that they manifest. And it's really important to see that as it arises and say, I see you. Or as Temple would say, Temp you know, I see you, Temple. <laughs> <laughs> Having the wisdom be what is um, actually doing the investigation, the Dhamma Vichaya. Have that be our wisdom aspect. And so um, there are ways that we can um, strengthen all of the, dom the um, seven factors of awakening. So according to the commentaries, the way to uh, increase the strength of mindfulness and know it's present is, um, you know, look for clear comprehension of things. Actually, one of the things in the suttas that said to strengthen mindfulness is to associate with mindful persons. Guess what you're doing here? <laughs> That's exactly what we're all doing. We are all associating with mindful persons. And we're inclining the mind towards the strengthening of mindfulness. That's what we're doing. So that's the first one. An investigation, Dharma Vichaya. Its characteristic is intuitive knowledge of the nature of dhammas. You're looking into a deeper sense of the dhammas that are arising. And its function, the function of investigation is 
to dispel darkness or to dispel, um, dispel, you know, a attachment to conditioned existence or to dispel a knowing based on concepts and conditioned existence. And um, it's interesting, some of the things that we can make sure that will contribute to the strengthening investigation. Having cleanliness internally and externally. (laughs) So I I like to brush my teeth every morning. That contributes to it. (laughs) Balancing the controlling faculties, balancing faith and wisdom, energy, concentration, and mindfulness. Faith is one that has come up for some people. And I know when I'm on retreat, I don't often notice that my faith gets really a lot stronger. And you might check that out to see if your faith in this practice is stronger than it was when you walked in the door. Or just to check to see what the level of faith is. Because faith is incredibly useful. And we can actually, you know, feel that. And, you know, maybe even do an aditana. May faith arise. May I know my faith. May I know faith. And then um, some of the other conditions for the arising and strengthening of investigation are... Reflections on the Dhamma, on the profoundness of the Dhamma, on what you're looking for. Reflections on wanting to be happy and wanting to have, you know, deep well-being that isn't associated with certain things happening in the external world. You know, if our well-being is based on the external world, how much, how much well-being can we really have? So courageous effort. So that's the next one. So investigation is the second one. And that is an arousing factor. That is a very energizing element of the seven factors. Um, Investigation is the first one. And investigation leads to virya, which is courageous effort. You know, when you're meditating and you're really interested in something, the effort just arises by itself, right? You don't have to say, oh, I got to try harder because interest brings effort with it. And you can see that. You can see that as, as two separate and important and very beautiful and wholesome mental factors. That you're, I know you're, you know, many of you, if not all of you, are having that. So you definitely want to look at that. So the characteristic of virya or courageous effort is enduring patience in the face of suffering and difficulty. Right? That's what it feels like. Enduring patience in the face of suffering and difficulty. Marshalling, you know, marshalling your effort, you know, marshalling your resources to um, really bring them to the practice. And again, you know, it, it really arises many times by itself. And um, there is, you know, ways for you to actually strengthen it and balance it, but we'll talk about that in a minute. The function of effort is supporting and consolidating the mental states to be able to really see what they are and to um, consolidate the really beautiful states like the seven factors. Uh, The manifestation of courageous effort is a bold and courageous mind, non-collapse. You just feel like you're there. I promise I will give you this handout. A bold and courageous mind. 
And it suppresses the hindrance. Uh, effort suppresses the hindrance of sloth and torpor by directed attention or aiming, which opens and refreshes the mind. We want to, you know, direct our effort at, you know, the mental factors that are arising. And also at the body. You know, I'm so happy that all of the teachers are so into mindfulness of the body because a lot of these uh, seven factors, you know, could are arising in the body. We are all in the body, right? And um, um, I know that sometimes I can feel effort and investigation and particularly the uh, calming factors absolutely and, and the sense of the body as well um, the ways of arousing uh, effort are wise attention which are investigation and according to the commentaries uh, another way to uh, strengthen effort is to reflection on the fearsomeness of um, the states of misery that one can fall into. <laughs> but, you know, think about it, because we have all been in states of misery. And knowing that, you know, those could arise any time, and knowing that we are developing and strengthening wholesome mental factors to know that and weaken those, I mean, that's good, you know, that's a good motivation for doing it, right? Reflections on the benefit of effort, you know, what happens when you do have good effort? It has excellent outcomes. You know, I always like to say at the end of retreat, but I'll say it now, it doesn't matter if you had a good time here, if you got blissed out, if it was uh, pleasant, it doesn't matter. You could have, you know, come here for seven days and just be swimming in dukkha, and guess what? It's still good karma that you're here. <laughs> It's still excellent, you know, karma for you to be doing the practice. So. so that's a good thing to reflect on, the benefits of effort, the benefits of doing the practice. It really is excellent karma. And then to think about, you know, all of, um, you know, not necessarily me, but think about all of the wonderful teachers that you have had and, you know, just bringing to mind what you could see in them, just the beautiful qualities, and say, hey, if they can do it, I can do it too. So it's very, um, it's very important. So courageous effort, Virya, ways of arousing it. So another way of rousing, arousing uh, good effort is being respectful of the food of the meal, you know, just knowing that, um, you know, this place did, has for many years, you know, wanted to make sure that all of the retreatants got the good food that they needed and food that was not going to, you know, cause any stomach problems so you could meditate. You know, people give a lot, a lot of thought to that and a lot of thought, a lot of thought to the conditions that you can do this practice in an easy way. So, you know, reflecting on that is a good way to also arouse effort and energy for this, yeah. You know, think about the Buddha and all of the wonderful um, people that we know that are really practicing well and the outcome of that. Think of all of the people who had deep spiritual practices and the incredible social justice that they were able to accomplish. That's really important. 
like Dr. Martin Luther King, man, he had a very deep spiritual practice and look what he was able to do, you know, to, to think that we can bring our wisdom and awareness and love and compassion to that, you know, that is a very big um, motivating factor as well. And then the next one, again, the first one is investigation, interest, the second one is effort, and the third one is rapture and piti. Rapture or happiness, delight, and satisfaction. See, satisfaction is sukha. <laughs> so I think the fourth um, uh, enlightenment factor is both PT and sukha. And I've seen you, so that's what I've seen mostly when you guys come in. You come in for an interview and you are giggling like crazy. And that's wonderful to see because that means that you're having happiness and lightness. You know, just giggling of being in the practice. And you should really notice that. That is a beautiful mental factor that we need to really notice. So rapture PT. I think it's PT and Sukha. The characteristics of it are happiness, delight, and satisfaction. PT is like a physical happiness that sometimes is like little bumps in the body. It can be very weak or <coughs> also very strong. PT is more like a physical sense of happiness. And Sukha, I love Sukha. Sukha is like a mental happiness, like a very deep sense of satisfaction. Like I don't need anything else. You know, I have what I need right now. And you can see that, you know, you can put your mindfulness frame around both of those things and say, wow, what is, you know, what does this feel like? You know, when you feel it, you should, you know, do a little bit of investigation of it, yeah. It manifests as physical sensations of lightness, it, you know, when it's very strong, it's elation. And uh, they say that when it's um, not very strong, you could still have little hairs raised, you know, it could make your hair stand on end. And uh, there's momentary PT or rapture, like flashes of lightning, showering, it's like just, you know, uh, feelings of delight falling all, all over you. We might not be in meditation long enough to have that here, but some people might be having it, yeah. And it suppresses the hindrance of ill will. Rapture and sukha suppresses ill will and aversion. Isn't that good? And ways of arousing PTR. Just think about the virtues of enlightened people, of the Buddha and other, you know, um, historical people that you love. For Christians, you could think about Jesus and Tunan uh, Sin, which is what we indigenous people call the Blessed Virgin Mary, <laughs> and uh, or the Buddha and all the Bodhisattvas, you know, just think about all of their beautiful qualities. That is a way to bring up um, rapture and PT. And uh, you know the virtues and the practices, uh, the wholesome practices that you are training yourself in. Just knowing that is a way to really just bring up joy and happiness. You know, when you can see the outcome of that. Uh, reflections on one's own uh, mental, um, it says here mental purity, but one's own commitment to the five precepts. You know, you guys are all practicing the five precepts here. That's excellent, um, you know, moral discipline that you're doing. And to reflect on that, yeah, you know, I'm not talking here for seven days. <laughs> 
that is something that should, you know, bring you some sense of joy and that, you know, you really are aligning with, you know, how we do the practice. A reflection on your generosity. If you're a generous person, you know, reflect on your generosity to other people can bring a lot of PT and sukha. Uh, reflection on the cessation of the kalesas, of, you know, the uh, maybe you're having less greed, hatred, and delusion and the manifestations of that from the first couple of days. If you see that those are weakening, just to delight in that and to know, wow, this practice really works. To see that can uh, strengthen piti and sukha. Yes. And... Um, other ways to do that is to avoid the company of r rough, angry, and mean people. <laughs> you know, that's, that's really true. You know, who you hang around with is not a little thing, right? It's not a little thing. And I get to hang around with these peeps. I am so happy right now. <laughs> and with you guys. You know, we're here because of you. You're making me happy right now. I'm going to smudge myself on you. <laughs> God, I'm feeling PT right now. <laughs> so, and what is PT? So those are the three arousing factors. And I'm sure you, with reflection, you'll see that you've had those, right? You probably, those have arisen maybe once or twice, probably in the last day, today or yesterday, tomorrow. And so uh, those are the three arousing and joy and PT, PT and sukha, sense of satisfaction. They lead to the beginning of the calming factors. And the first one is tranquility or calm. Tranquility or calm. Calmness of the body and mind. Uh, it also can feel like the end of agitation. Its function of tranquility is to extract or suppress mental heat due to restlessness and worry. That's the um, hindrance that it uh, definitely corrects. And the ways of arousing tranquility. You know, one way to arouse it is just to know what it feels like. And I know most of you, probably all of you, all of us, have had that sensation, oh, wow, this is very calm and very tranquil. And you want to know that as deeply as you can because that's the way you strengthen it and that's how you can call it up. When you remember what it feels like, you know, sometimes that calls it up and, you know, allows it to arise again. Why is attention directed developing wholesome mental states, especially meditative states, which allow tranquility? You know, that is uh, the ways of arousing it, to arouse really wholesome mental states. Uh, and according to the commentaries, a way to arouse and strengthen tranquility and calm, um, sensible and nutritious food. And, you know, they actually work a lot to make sure that you have <laughs> sensible and nutritious food. So they're making sure that if there's anything in the suttas about what you should be eating, that is what you are eating. <laughs> Another one is suitable weather. <laughs> but think about it. You know, I got here on Saturday and, you know, with the wind chill, it was like minus 20 degrees. It was 40 degrees today. 
So I think, you know, we got really lucky that as soon as we got here and the retreat started, the weather really changed, didn't it? I mean, it really did change. I think that must be all of our good karma, right? <laughs> so suitable weather, comfortable but not luxurious postures, comfortable postures, maintaining a balanced effort and practice. Yeah, sitting up straight, you know, not too rigidly, but, um, you know, posture really is important. And the Buddha taught four postures, you know, and we're all doing, doing all of that. What are some of the other things that uh, promote tranquility? Of course, not hanging around bad-tempered, rough, or cruel people. <laughs> and I think that all of our most wholesome qualities are here today. I mean, that's what Sangha is. I mean, I think that's part of what the vibe we're feeling is. It's just really wholesome, you know, a deep sense of calm, deep sense of... Uh, the practice, wanting to develop wholesomeness, you know, abiding by the five precepts that uh, were taken. Yeah, that definitely is part of the tranquility. And then, um, all of uh, tranquility leads to the next uh, awakening factor, which is, which is concentration and samadhi. And we've all been practicing for that too you know, anchoring our awareness in the beginning of our meditations, maybe for 10 or 15 minutes, starting our meditation with maybe some Brahma Vihara, some uh, loving kindness phrases or compassion phrases, or uh, doing the body scan, you know, a slow body scan is a samadhi concentration practice, or anchoring awareness here at the belly, just watching, you know, the four parts, uh, in-breath, pause, out-breath, pause, just watching that, you know, for a while before you open up to uh, choiceless awareness or letting mindfulness pick, you know, what is going to arise and open awareness. So, um, and then concentration, you can also, you know, fix your attention Breath at the nose is a good samadhi practice. And doing all of that within a whole body awareness is excellent. Doing samadhi within a whole body awareness, I think, is a little easier and actually a little bit more graceful or um, compassionate than just trying to stick it, you know, right here or right here. There can be a lot of ego clinging of wanting to you know, know, um, know the breath just at one point. So doing that within a whole body awareness, I think, is a way to just relax all of that. Relax it and let you build really strong samadhi in a relaxed way. Yeah. So um, some of the ways that we can increase concentration or samadhi, ways of arousing them are uh, purity of internal and external basis, you know, clean your little cushion there. <laughs> Feeling like you're clean, you know, that your body is clean and your cushion is clean. You know, paying attention to that. Um, so skill in the concentration object, application to jhana practice, well, that's a little bit jhana practice. But you can actually say 
may concentration arise, you know, may samadhi arise right now, may shamatha arise. And then you just let go of that. You can have, you know, aditana or an intention for that to arise, but you can't hold on to it or grab on it because um, deep concentration is actually an anatta, a selfless, an experience of selflessness. The deepest um, concentration, jhanas, you know, you can't, the ego is not there. Those are happening because of the dhamma is there. That's when the dhamma takes over, really. Oh my gosh, I only have 10 minutes left. <laughs> uh, associating, associating with concentrated people. Hey, look around. <laughs> the vibe is in the room. Um, inclining the mind towards the development of con concentration, just you know, making that a, to be a commitment, a very wholesome commitment. Calming the mind when it is excited. And essentially, it's balancing the... Uh, if you feel like your mind is getting too concentrated or too eager to get concentrated, you know, you can say, may tranquility arise, and that might be able to calm that. Or, you know, may... Um, may um, investigation arise. You could use some investigation to really calm that down. And then the final of the seven awakening factors, the last of the calming factors is equanimity, upeka, which is one of my favorite things in the whole world. <laughs> and that's the, uh, the characteristic of upeka is the balancing of opposed mental states. It's also the acceptance of anything that arises. You know, knowing, you know, I love Upeka. It's whatever arises, you're okay with it. You know, you're okay with it. And it's not like trying to be that way. It's a natural arising of, yeah, I'm okay with whatever is here right now. And um, the ways of arousing that, according to the Buddha, are wise attention continuous mindfulness based on the intention to develop equanimity. Yeah, and you could even do a little aditana, may equanimity arise. When you find yourself liking something too much or not liking something too much, you could do the aditana, may equanimity arise. May I be um, open and totally accepting of whatever is arising in this moment. It's acceptance of whatever is arising in a way that, you know, is very meaningful, yeah. Uh, and according to the commentaries, a way to strengthen equanimity is uh, attitude, an equanimous attitude towards all living beings and not to be too attached to anyone. So to think, is there anybody in this room that I'm too attached to? I know we have relatives in the room, you know, that we love and we adore and... You know, um, sometimes we just want to be around them and give them a hug, and that's great. And we can also use that experience of wanting that connection to be an excellent opportunity to practice some equanimity. So, you know, may equanimity arise. May my equanimity towards this person or that group, you know, may I be equanimous and accept things just as they are right now. May I be okay with things as they, just as they are right now. It's really a wonderful, a wonderful practice. Avoiding people who are deeply possessive or otherwise lack equanimity. You know, don't hang around with people who are very, very greedy or very, very aversive. Uh, associating with those who are not too strongly attached to beings or possessions. 
inclining the mind towards developing equanimity. You know, may equanimity arise. I think hanging out in um, awareness, spacious awareness, I think, is definitely a good place for the development of equanimity. So that was a lot to talk about. (laughs) And um, the way to practice with that is when you're meditating, you know, you might want to start with some little samadhi practice and then just open up, you know, open up to see what is naturally arising in your heart, mind, body and see if there's any of those seven factors uh, arising. And, um, you know, see, you could check to see if the three arousing uh, factors are there. Is there interest here? Oh, yeah, there's interest. And notice the interest and notice the effort that goes with it. And notice the joy that arises when you have that. And then, you know, see if the calming factors are there. If they're not, you can say, you know, where is calm here? There is calm and uh, tranquility here somewhere. And if you look for it, you could usually find it and say, oh, may calm arise right now. May I feel the calm that balances this. Uh, may, the, may I know the samadhi that is here. And balance that with the arising factors and the equanimity. And just balance those. It's some wonderful, you know, it really leads on to much deeper awareness and much deeper insight. You know, that's a place you want to go for insight and for the chitta to feel nourished and for, you know, that data collection to happen and for, um, you know, all of the really big, beautiful insights of, uh, of um, imperfect. The conditioned world is imperfect and the conditioned world is impermanent. It's changing all the time. How much did we weigh when we were born? <laughs> we are so different now. We're different now than we were when we had dinner tonight. And then uh, all of it is impersonal as well. You know, that very deep, and I love to go back to my indigenous roots of this, that you know we are connected in a way that produces a profound intimacy among all of us. You know, our intimacy of knowing anatta is 20 times better. I I don't even know if you could even put a number on it than what intimacy that we have when I, me, and mine are here. So that's one reason to see through that, that animal body, as Temple tells us, that animal body, part of us that clings to things in order to our, uh, for us to maintain our life and those of our children and our family. But I've seen it in many of you, so. You know, we don't want to grab at it, but it's very wholesome mental states and it's an absolutely natural outcome of going on retreat and of practice. So let's sit and hang out there.
May the positive energies of our practice work to end the suffering of all beings in all directions. May all beings be happy, including all of us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.